ora koutou katoa everyone, I'm Bernard Hickey and welcome to the brand new Hoon, joining us with all the gear, Peter Bale in Hoon Bay, our co-host, great to see you Peter. Thank Bernard, it's great to see you too, I don't know what, when it's either your sofa or we're doing it from here, but uh, as I was explaining to our new producer Simon, who seems like a lovely chap, you came around, danced at my house, drank my wine, ate my food and left a legacy of a new mic. Absolutely. No, I, I screwed it to the desk. It's wonderful to have Simon on board with us. Thank you very much, Simon. Can he also make us look five years younger and me less great? Oh, no, Funny enough, just... Bernard, I went to the hairdresser today, to my fabulous hairdresser, Rex, who is from the Philippines, and he said, Peter, what the hell's going on? Your hair is getting thicker and darker. <laughs> and I can assure you it's nothing that I'm doing, but I think it's just regular trims. Yeah, no, it's um, it's good. It's a good day, a sticky day in Auckland, but we'll get there. It has has been a hell of a week for news all around the world, financial markets, geopolitics, politics here, the climate. It's all gone. It's all gone off, and uh, quite a busy week to get through. This week we have Xi Jinping's wall of military steel that he's going to build, and the new submarines the Australians are getting. Oh God, the submarine of steel. Yeah, the yellow and green submarine. And then we have. Which I think I think we now know that it was actually a bloody good idea not for us not to be part of Walkers. Yeah, yeah. No, so that's that's a big piece of news on the international front. Then of course we had a couple of banks collapse in the United States, and one. Really big one in Switzerland. Um, is on the way. Stand it's on the this, brink. Yeah, and yeah. get a whole bunch of uh, money from the Swiss National Bank to keep them going. And we'll talk to Raf Manji about that, a former trader in financial markets, and of course now the leader of Top. And also, what's going on with Top? What's happening in the economy and where we are politically? I could actually imagine voting for Top. You know, I mean, it might be. I mean, we have to work out whether it's a wasted vote. It's the kind of thinking person's act, really. I mean, <laughs> I might have to tell Raf, which I quite like uh, Raf, but Raf then has to get a caterum Lotus Super 7 like uh, David it da- could do. Da- I suspect has. it's going to be one of those converted electric ones. Anyway, we'll ask oh, Raf when idea. he's on Very yeah, good idea. when he's on about that. And then at 5.30, we have Nicola Willis, who is the National Party's finance spokesperson, who's been busy this week. I think she's actually the National Party leader, isn't she? <laughs> a bit quiet about that, I think. No, I think we can, I think we can quiet. I'm going to let you run that conversation, but I might just chip in with the odd bit of cheekiness. She's been busy and effective, and certainly it didn't look that naked at the top of National when no. Christopher Luxon was on a sick leave with COVID. So that's from five thirty to five forty-five. It's a little bit. It's a little bit actually like Wayne Brown and Desley. I mean, when Wayne Brown resurfaced mm. on the radio this week, I mean, he couldn't have looked a bigger asshole than he actually was. <laughs> you know, Desley just looks as though she's come from a dinner party in Rimuera and is just is just immediately lucid and clear and very charming. And she's definitely more experienced and knows the council system. And, um, yes, she's certainly the grown-up in that uh, relationship. And it's pretty shocking, actually, to see how many of those press conferences and things ended with her guiding... What the mayor really means. Yeah, yeah. What he intended to say, yeah. And we'll be talking about the Auckland Council's austerity program, which I had a bit of a go at this week in a big, long piece. And we'll talk about that with who also, as a Green Party MP, has had to swallow some rats this week as the government... Well, you know, this is, is the whole impression? policy bonfire thing, you know? Mm-hmm. You know, all these big yeah, know, climate can, policies. Can you tell me more about the swallowing rats? Well, that's a New Zealand phrase. Is this not... Because I was on St Helier's this morning on my bike ride and I saw a, a black-backed gull hauling a rather large rat carcass across the boardwalk. And I thought, 
It's an excellent metaphor, but I hope the rat hasn't died of um, poisoning. I hope it's actually just been run over because I didn't want the bird to die. But so she swallowed a rat. Come on. Yeah, well, figuratively, the Green Party has swallowed a whole bunch this week. And how they deal with it is sort of interesting. We talk about that with, with Chloe. And then, of course, at the end of the end of the hour, Peter's got his skateboarding dog and there's a few candidates uh, this week. It's more of a skateboarding arsehole, really, isn't it, than this, this week's one? Yes, yes. Peter... Um, this week has been a huge one in uh, international affairs. Let's have a quick roundup of the um, well, a, tour, a tour of the uh, horizon. Yes, yes. I, I think it's worth covering yeah. off this um, alarming uh, clash between a drone and a couple of Russian jets. Well, it is the most extraordinary. If you haven't watched it yet, the video is the most extraordinary video and it is I mean it should win it should beat uh, Top Gun Maverick in the Oscars you know it, it, it's hard to believe actually that the that the Reaper drone has that many cameras on it that can also point to the back and the side it's also quite clear that it has rather remarkable cameras embedded in its belly if you look at it but the way that the Sukhoi Su-27 jets drop fuel on it the amazing thing is that they didn't light them with their afterburners, which I thought they might have, because that would certainly sort out a Reaper or two. <laughs> yeah, that will be a thing. Um, I noticed the Americans, you know, say this was unprofessional. I love that idea that the uh, <laughs> that in a war you'd accuse people of being unprofessional, which just is quite. Well, a it's th- not, sorry, but Bernard, the Americans are not in a war with the Russians. No. No, no, you know, no. This it's, is this is these are these are two sovereign powers encountering each other in international waters, and one is pouring jet fuel over the other's aircraft. It is not. We're not in a war, so that's what they mean by that. But you know, if you if you remember Top Gun Maverick, what's unprofessional is you know Tom Cruise kind of crawling through the snow in somewhere that may or may not be North Korea, and jumping into an F sixteen that just happens to be ready to go in the you know that is ridiculous. No, it's um, quite a weird thing. And luckily, they seem to have avoided um, shooting each other down. I had this vision of the Russians dumping fuel or afterburnering, <laughs> scorching yeah. the drone, and then the drone accidentally shooting it up the bum with a with some sort of missile well, that it's the, got the on the side. Was, the drone was unarmed. I mean, it was a surveillance drone. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's, what's also interesting about this is that apparently the Russians have been becoming a, a little bit more aggressive in Syria as well towards uh, American aircraft. And you might remember that the Russians intercepted or they do this thing where you flip up the aircraft and show that you've got you carrying your weapons and they actually accidentally allegedly set off a um a missile very near a, a british what's called a rivet early warning aircraft a few months ago so there's a there's a bit of this shenanigans going on and of course we all one always worries that this is going to set something off yes that is the worry uh, this week we had this quite extraordinary speech from Xi Jinping mm. at the end of the National uh, People's Congress in which he talked about the threat from the United States and the rest of the world trying to contain China and why an extra 7% needed to be spent on China's mm-hmm. military budget, which is already pretty big, to create what he called yeah, a... Of course, nowhere near the American military budget, no, of course. Yeah. No, that's true. But of course, nowhere near as big as the, uh, as the American one, but it is something he called the... Chinese military's wall of steel. Wall of steel. Great wall of steel, which uh, quite fortuitously or coincidentally was followed by an announcement from 
Australia, the UK, and the United States, this new arrangement called AUKUS, whereby the Australians agreed to buy eight submarines over the next 20 years or so. Uh, 368 billion Australian dollars. And that's the first price. You know yeah. it's not going <laughs> to yeah. end with it. I mean, it's going to be like Transmission Gully, isn't it? <laughs> that's right. If only we'd had nuclear submarines instead of Transmission Gully, that would have been better. And that is, uh, that's, a, that's a really big uh, announcement. Not only that, but we've heard that America has agreed to sell Tomahawk cruise missiles to Australia. That came out today as well. Mm-hmm. Peter, you, you wrote a column uh, for North and South about this issue of the relationship between the West and China. What's your view of this latest big drama? I'm actually with Paul Keating on this. I think it said, well, actually, I'm not, perhaps I'm not with Paul Keating on the idea that it's a total disaster, but because I think what's happening and I hope Biden is doing this, and I hope that Anthony Blinken, the Secretary of State, reestablishes his visit to China quite quickly, uh-huh. is you've got to engage with China. China's not going to go away. Xi Jinping's not going to go away for at least, you know, between five and ten years, one can imagine. We have to get beyond this idea of American hegemony. You know, we have to engage with China, and I suspect what is going on here, and I hope what's going on in here, is that the U.S. is saying that it will be a strong rival to China, I don't believe that this technical technological isolation of China can possibly last, but there has to be a re-engagement at some point. But I think Biden is clear that he wants to do it from a position of strength. The Xi stuff was slightly bellicose, except that he also just he reiterated the determination to take Taiwan eventually. You know, the CIA says that they've the Chinese have a uh, they want the military to be ready to do that by 2027. That doesn't mean that there's going to be an evasion in 2027, but they, they want that level of preparedness. So I'm not sure that we are headed for a World War Three, but I think we have to find ways, including with, with the whole Iraq conflict, to try to get past this idea of American hegemony because it's not good. And then you've had Donald Trump today talking about how Ukraine is not of strategic interest to the United States and that the real enemies of the United States are, in fact, the American administration. So you've got these weird, traitorous things, and you've had Ron DeSantis this week as as well say that Ukraine is not a strategic interest of the United States. So it's a very delicate, you know, we're going through an extraordinarily delicate international period. You know, (laughs) Paul Keating more or less described Joe Biden as well. I mean, Paul Keating shat on most of the Australian establishment Political establishment and a few others from a height from 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 a from a from a great height from a great height at extreme accuracy repeatedly. And Paul Keating has never been short of you know his own you know he's got tickets on himself of course a little bit like the very clever Kevin Rudd but you know he was also describing Joe Biden as someone who can barely string a sentence together and I'm afraid that seems to be correct. So I reckon it's the American side of it that makes me feel a bit more vulnerable than I might otherwise. Yeah, I'm slightly uh, more uh, hawkish on the China issue. And yeah. this this is because of um, a good 20 years of trying to understand not just not only just China, but New Zealand's relationship with China and becoming quite uh, wary of a loose approach. Because from my experience, China and China's government, the communist government, is very strategic and clear about protecting and enhancing its own interests Mm. and has a very clear 
MO in ensuring that its interests are protected and that it uses soft power, usually, but sometimes hard power, to get what it needs. And I think New Zealand has been pretty naive over the last decade in simply being quite relaxed about saying, oh, these guys are good, they trade with us, Um, we should just take them at face value and we should just treat them like lots of other people from overseas. You know, if they want to buy something, they pay a good price, we should let them buy whatever they want. If they want to set up a cultural organisation and spend lots of money building a building and having lots of Lots of great festivals, great. It's good. If they want to set up a English language school at a university, that's fantastic. If they want to invite our best scientists over to their universities to learn how to do things and pay them to do that, that's great. And suddenly, before you know it, as we've found, and the the list of examples is, is wide, we have seen an awful lot of people who have lost intellectual property, have lost money, who have started to understand that it's not as simple as this is just another company or another person who's doing something. But actually, there is a a broad strategic approach to extending the influence of China. And the reason I'm I'm quite tough and hawkish on this when perhaps, you know, I would be a bit more open and relaxed is I covered and organised the coverage of the unveiling of National MP Jian Young's history as a senior member of a military training institute in China, which trained, frankly, spies, and then proceeded to come to New Zealand, use influence within the National Party to become an MP, and eventually became the head of the Foreign Affairs and Trade Select Committee. And this is all publicly available documented detail. Uh, although, to be honest, the National Party at the time had not uh, looked at it very closely. And since then, I've become a lot more aware of some of the um, the issues uh, with China's um, aggression is too strong a word, projection, I think is the best one. And in essence, you have to push back. And whenever I've seen up close and personal what a not free government and a, a not nice government uh, does, uh, China is one of those. And we are completely in China's ambit. And I must say, I'm, I'm with the Americans and, and the Australians on this. We have RAF joining us. Now, Bernard, can you hear me? Because I'm. I can. I'm having a monologue. Yeah, no, no, you did. <laughs> no, I can hear you too, Ref. But we're fine with monologues. Yeah, yeah. No, yes. we're good. At, we're good at that, and we appreciate you jumping in. And I just wanted to ask you a bit more about the political scene this week, where Labor's policy bonfire led to questions about. What was the point of MMP if none of the major parties have significant controversial or slightly um, unusual policies that might upset someone that everyone seems to want to hug the middle, not move, keep a low profile and hope to sneak through and win government on a perception of competence, at least not necessarily change or anything unusual. What do you think about that? You're the leader of one of these parties in the middle who are supposed to, you know, push 
push one of the big guys one way or another or try to open the Overton window so that we have a oh, wider discussion nice, than, than nice protecting. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, look, I mean, look, as, as somebody said, I will play nicely uh, with everyone. I don't really particularly care what party people belong to. It's, it's you know, what are we going to do for the people of New Zealand? That is the key issue. And, and I'm thinking back to a, a quote from... Uh, Rambo John Jay, I think it was Rambo 4, where he said, better to die for something than live for nothing. You know, and I think in politics, it, you know, it's a hard job. Um, it takes its toll, particularly in the modern social media era. You've got to stand for something. You've got to say to people, this is what I'm about. And this is what I you know, want to propose. And this is the policy uh, or regulations that we think will be good. And I think Labour, I have no idea what Labour stands for anymore at all. Do, I think, do you mean since Jacinda has gone? No, at all. I mean, when Jacinda said no capital gains tax under my watch, it's yeah. like, what's the point? You're the Labour Party, mm-hmm. okay? So if, there, if there's one thing you should be doing, it's taxing the hell out of capital, whichever way you do it. So that yeah. I kind of lost interest in Labour back then. And I think national... You know, I mean, it shows there are a few green shoots there, but they need to kind of get their act together as well. And you can see that, you know, act has been dominating uh, because they have policies, uh, whether you agree with them or not, but they articulate them well and quickly. And I think what we're trying to do at the Opportunities Party is do the same. So we have a big policy release uh, on Monday that is coming out, Project Teal, um, has been the code name oh, nice. uh, for it. And again, it's trying, you know, I'm not here, you know, I'm not a spring chicken, and, you know, this takes... Or a teal, in fact. Uh, um, Well, I am a teal, really. I'm I'm a blue-green, really, at heart. And um, I think we've got to present some kind of vision to the public that is deliverable and that is funded, um, and that will deliver the outcomes that people want. And that's what I say to anyone. So that's that's our focus. I don't know what Labour is is doing, but... I mean, they're they're trying to make themselves less unacceptable to... Midstream national. Yeah, that's good. But you can't. I mean, you you can't live on focus groups alone. But that looks like what they're doing, doesn't it? You know. Yes. Next, they'll be giving everybody a double cab Ute. Yeah. To be fair, they which I quite advocate a bunch of really bad policies over the last three years. So you kind of think, okay, they're essentially giving themselves a fail mark for Mm. the last three years. Now, from a political point of view, they should go to the country right now and have an election. I mean, let's just get on with it. We've we've had a long time waiting. Um, you know, the last three years has felt like six years. So go and have an election, yeah. you know, rather than having a five, five kind of, you know, months of dark winter, the mm. country's going backwards, mortgage rates hitting. The know, phony, really the phony war, as we used yeah. to call it in World War yeah. when, I was, yeah. when I was doing so, it. I think just get on with it. Tell us what mm. the Labour Party is about. Tell us what the Labour Party is going to do. Don't pretend that you hate the Greens because you're actually going to be in government with them and they will have seats around the cabinet table. How's that going to work? And, you know, I think, yeah, they need to front up a little bit. And it feels like the the whole political arena at the moment is quite fragile. You know, a lot of cabinet ministers are going out the back door. Some of them are throwing themselves down the stairs <laughs> well, as well. Well, they're helping themselves yeah. out the door. And uh, I actually think from just a, a neutral perspective, I think we probably need an election sooner than later, just because the problems are mounting up. And when you have a government that is basically saying goodbye to all the policies that it's promoted and stood on for the last three years, that's kind of like, well, they're basically waving the white flag. So if they've got something new to say, let's hear it and let's discuss it and let's debate it. Ref, before you came in, I described you as the thinking person's David Seymour. Uh, how, how, how do you feel about that? I mean, he's he's got, you know, a few MPs in there. He's 
he's very good at getting himself heard, even if half of it is quite silly. How do you see Top sitting adjacent to ACT? I think in some respects, you know, we do look at, at detailed policy and what will work. Uh, I think we, we we have probably a different approach. We're probably a bit more progressive. They've become quite reactionary, um, which is disturbing at times. But actually, I can get on fine with them. We can talk about stuff and disagree with stuff. And they're generally reasonably logical in how they approach things. And I, and I think that's always a good place um, to start. So like I said, we'll work with anybody. Our job is to make sure we get good policy uh, for Kiwis, that money is spent well, and that is certainly an area we probably all agree on, um, and legislation that actually works and stands up in court. Well, we'll um, we'll see how it goes in the next six months or so, because you might be talking to each other at some point. Nicola Willis, welcome welcome to the Hoon. It's wonderful to see you. Thank you Hi. very much, Raf. So the first question, Bernard, is a practical one, which is, can you hear me? This is my car studio. My flight was delayed. I was hoping we'd be speaking from my office, but here I am. And no, that's quite all right. We, that's why this is called the car car. Yeah. There's a precedent for this. Yeah. No, no. You're lucky the rest of us aren't also in cars, um, having a great discussion, a great hoon in our car cars in the car car. So, Let's not take that too much further. No. So, Nicola, I, it's lovely to see you and uh, to see you being very uh, active in the last couple of weeks, calling for inquiries, calling for ministers to stand down. Um, firstly, on the bank issue, this week the government, uh, through its uh, dominance of the Finance and Expenditure Select Committee decided not to hold the Select Committee hearing into uh, the banking industry that you'd asked for. Um, what did you think of that? And also their apparent consideration of a market study by the Commerce Commission. Yeah, well, look, I was really disappointed because you have to ask, what is Parliament for if not using its powers to get answers to questions New Zealanders are asking? And parliamentary inquiries have pretty extensive powers. They can summon witnesses, i.e. the chief executives of the retail banks. They can demand evidence. They can require information. And they do all of that in public. So it's completely transparent. Whereas a market study, uh, which may or may not occur, there's been a lot of talk but not much action there, typically takes more than a year. The interviews take place in confidential briefing rooms and government agencies in Wellington. They are closed to the public. Uh, and the recommendations can be a long time coming. And if you were to ask New Zealanders today, hey, do you remember the market study into petrol, into supermarkets, into construction material? People would say, well, what did that do? Because nothing much has really changed. So I never said that we shouldn't do a market study, but I think there is power in Parliament doing an inquiry. And there were particular areas I was interested in. You know, what impact did the Reserve Bank's money for lending program and funding programs have on the bottom lines of banks? You know, that quantitative easing and the mechanisms that they used, how much profitability did that add to the banks? I was also interested in the regulatory questions about what the Reserve Bank's capital requirements have meant in terms of both profitability but also who's able to enter the market in New Zealand. And the triple CFA, the, the credit regulations, and what impact they may have had. So there are a range of questions we could have looked at, but unfortunately, the Labour members said no. And Nicola, we've also had some news on the RMA this week. There's been an infrastructure 
commission a report uh, submitted to a select committee, which was very critical of the delays that uh, we're going to get with consents in the new RMA. And um, Chris Bishop has come out and made some comments as the finance uh, spokesperson who's going to be signing the checks on infrastructure, <laughs> if, if in government, and thinking about the RMA, which really is one of those fundamental building blocks of our political economy. Uh, what do you think about this RMA reform process and what it means? Because on the face of it, this was supposed to solve the problems and it seems to be going to make it worse. Exactly. So it's really sad because what we had actually finally got to was a political consensus that the existing Resource Management Act is not fit for purpose, is slowing things down too much and needed to be replaced. But unfortunately, the replacement that the government has come up with is just very flawed. You know, there have been renewable uh, energy investors come to the committee who've said this will make it almost impossible for us to consent new renewable energy. They say it will be worse than the status quo. And bear in mind, under the status quo, it can take up to nine years to consent a wind farm. And, and the Infrastructure Commission are very clear uh, in their advice that they think the proposed Natural and Built Environments Act will slow down decarbonisation. And that just can't stand. We are in a situation where we need to bring on huge amounts of renewable energy in order to electrify New Zealand. We've got to get the consenting framework right. And if the replacement that the government is proposing doesn't deliver that, then you've got to ask yourself what it does deliver. Nicola, may I ask you a potentially slightly naive political question, which is that you've been filling in, in a sense, for Christopher Luxon um, this week, and you seem to have done a remarkably strong job of it. And and slightly unfairly, I compared you to Desley in Auckland uh, filling in for Wayne Brown. But oh, you know, <laughs> yeah, maybe you won't want to comment. But uh, you, this, I, I've heard you now on the environment a couple of times, and it's very clear that you are not hesitating in your own role. Is National fully behind the existing, you know, push on? carbon neutral policies and and to try to meet 1.5 degrees internationally? Yes, we are. I mean, we see this as a great economic reform challenge of our political era, which is to say New Zealand, along with other countries in the world, needs to decarbonise. That's a big change in our economy. But we've committed to the goal. We've committed to zero carbon 2050. We signed up to the Zero Carbon Act. We've signed up to the government's emission reduction budgets and the role of the Climate Change Commission in advising on those. The debate we're having is about how you best deliver on that emission reduction. And consistent with our political philosophy, we think it's really important that you look at what are the barriers in the way of private sector investment, what are the barriers from a consenting perspective that are stopping new projects happening, uh, and we're also concerned that we send clear price signals through the emissions trading scheme so that business knows this train is coming, you've got to get on, so be ready. Uh, and so we, we've been quite clear that we don't think there's a place for using revenue raised by the ETS uh, for what um, I've loosely called corporate welfare schemes, um, subsidising the likes of Frontera and others to, to put in coal boilers. Well, it's their job to do that. Nicola, uh, just finally, um, this week the emissions trading schemes auction of credits from its reserve failed for the first time ever. 
And it seems because people in the markets basically have lost confidence in the ability of the government to uh, control or limit the amount of credits that are out there and the price of carbon is falling. Uh, What would National do with the emissions trading scheme and how would it use it to um, reduce emissions? I've talked to a couple of people and read some of the analysis about what went on at the last auction and it does seem to relate back to the decisions the government made late last year about uh, changing the allocations and the price floor. Look, I think our position is one that's pretty orthodox. We think the emissions trading scheme is the key tool for achieving emission reduction because it is the thing that allocates how many carbon units there will be in the economy and sets a price for them. So we need to make sure that that um, scheme is robust and that people have confidence in it. So does that mean bringing in agriculture and making sure a lot of these big industrial producers are not given bunches of free credits? It doesn't mean bringing in agriculture. We think that should be treated separately. But it does mean ensuring that we use that price mechanism. And and we think the rinky-dink schemes, uh, the cash for clunkers scheme and some of the other ones that uh, hit the deck this week, aren't the right way to use what are very precious emissions revenue dollars. Because ultimately we have to understand that the ETS puts a price, yes, on emitters, but ultimately that is paid by New Zealanders at the pump paid for by New Zealanders at the supermarket who've got additional freight on the goods that they're buying. And that can be very regressive if you take that revenue taken from low-income and and middle-income New Zealanders and you redistribute it to profitable businesses or to other schemes that are actually much more benefiting wealthier New Zealanders who, for example, can buy Teslas than they are others. So we want the ETS to be seen as the core mechanism. There is a role for the Crown to act in a complementary way, whether that's with infrastructure, whether that's with initiatives that have a really good carbon return, but we've got to be careful. Nicola Willis, the National Party spokesperson on... Acting uh, leader, I think. No, 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 I didn't say that. I didn't say that. No, 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 I did that. I'm very happy to say that. Thank you very much, uh, Nicola Willis. We'll let you get back to your car car. We'll go on with the hoon. (laughs) (laughs) Cheers. Thank you very much. And now we'd like to welcome in uh, Chloe Swarbrick, who has come to us this week. And for those who have, uh, who are familiar with the hoon, have uh, heard uh, Chloe once or twice. Chloe, uh, this week has been a huge one, really, for climate policy in New Zealand, but also in the government's approach to a bunch of things. So climate change policy, containers to be recycled, alcohol policy. Essentially, um, I mean, the phrase that's being used is bonfire of the policies, which is very attractive as a visual image. Another one is, you know, they've really basically dumped anything that could be remotely possible with Ford Ranger Man, and they have said to the Greens, "Uh, you know all this stuff that you've spent all this time on? Yeah, nah. How do you feel after this week? which on the face of it looks like the Greens have had to swallow a bunch of rats. I don't think that we've swallowed any of them. Um, so I'd say, you know, if you look at how our parliament works, um, we operate under a parliamentary supremacy, um, kind of we don't have a Supreme Codified Constitution, uh, we have a unicameral system. It is the case that if you have a bare majority of those 120 seats in parliament, just 61, you can do pretty much whatever you like. 
uh, past budgets, past laws, etc. Obviously, post the 2020 election, we ended up with a situation where Labour had had an historical majority under MMP of those 65 seats. What that means is that they basically could do pretty much whatever they wanted to do. Uh, in keeping with the relationship that we obviously had in the previous term, um, we entered into a cooperation agreement, which many will note was a lot thinner uh, than that confidence and supply arrangement. And in keeping with that, we obviously have those ministerial positions for both Marama and James. And I think particularly on those climate pieces of policy that you were referring to, Bernard, what has, and I'll be completely upfront with you, incredibly frustrating mm. um, about this term in particular, is that while we hold uh, the ministerial portfolio of uh, climate change and the ability to put in place the frameworks, for example, the Zero Carbon Act and that pathway to net neutrality by 2050, the carbon budgets and otherwise, uh, what we don't hold is all of the ministerial positions that are necessary to make that happen. And when you're talking about that in the context of the country as a whole, obviously you um, hit Nicola with the question with regard to agriculture uh, and, you know, Hiwaka Ikenoa is still kind of meandering its way through. Tiana Tuyono called it uh, Hiwaka Ikenoa. Uh, <laughs> Sorry, I hadn't heard that. That's good. Yeah. We also have uh, here in Tamaki Makoto, Auckland, um, a situation where, you know, half of our emissions profile is transport and we have mm -hmm. a mayor who seems absolutely intent on doing anything that he possibly can to uh, both cut climate adaptation and mitigation in the form of better investment in public transport. I don't know if any of you uh, or your listeners have tried to catch a bus recently in Auckland, but I did just yesterday and it was an utter nightmare. So cutting thousands, permanently thousands of bus routes mm. across the country, making it far more inconvenient for people to utilise, but also increasing the cost of using those buses. Yeah, and yeah it's, it, it's mind-blowing. So back to your question in terms of uh, kind of the frustration, uh, it's incredibly frustrating, but I think that it's demonstrative of the way that our parliament currently works uh, in that I think many of us would be completely uh, on board with the idea that, you know, if you were to design a system that was capable, let alone competent, of dealing with the systems of our time, you would not design the Westminster colonial parliamentary system. <laughs> uh, and I think that, yeah, that, that's kind of the point that I've tried to get across when talking to people today is that what on earth is the point of Labour holding all of that power uh, that absolute utter majority, if not to respond to the crises, the emergency. Yeah, exactly. But th those policies, it was sort of a collection. I mean, I, that whole bonfire thing is a bit of a, you know, it's it's a bit of a weak, weak wonder thing. But there was some policies in there that, that have gone that suggest that, that the climate is not central to existing government thrust. And I thought James Shaw quite recently was came across a little bit exhausted and exasperated including about the, the road to zero policies as well. Let me ask you a sort of odd political question. Do you feel now that it would have been better if you'd stood for Auckland Mayor than stayed in your current role or combined them? <laughs> I've had a few people ask me that. Um, uh, I, I did once and, and I lost. So I'm, I'm now here. I've fallen down the rabbit hole in this direction. I mean, we're obviously mounting a really serious campaign um, against the current proposals in, in the mayoral budget. And I think that this is where, um, kind of alluding to Bernard's question before, it is really important that we reflect on where power sits uh, in this mm. country. Because something which Jeanette Fitzsimons always said 
often comes to mind for me, and that's that sunlight is the best disinfectant. We have this really peculiar cultural norm in this country, which has been the status quo my entire life, where the government is consistently blamed for stuff without any real cognizance of the fact that the government is the House of Representatives, which is supposed to be all of us and the Mm. things that we Mm. want to see happen. But I think this is part and parcel of seeing politics as as professionalised and as separate from us, as opposed to, again, those manifestations of which again actually only diminishes our understanding of power and leverage that we as average citizens hold in organizing to force the government to change and you're starting to see um, all the more seeds of you know I've been encouraged by over the past few years like the school strike for climate movement and young people really understanding their power to organize but not quite connecting the dots between the difference between tactics i.e one march and a strategy which is you know the really compelling uh, example is the zero. Which you, you must have had an epiphany about exactly that point at some point to actually become an MP, didn't you? Or to well, stand? I think uh, just to give you my kind of philosophical underpinning for my, my theory of change and the way I go about yeah. doing stuff. You know, on the one side of things, you've got structure, um, which is what we spend a lot of time talking about. It is your government budgets, your legislation, regulation, taxation, funding, incentives, subsidies, treaties, procurement, contracts, etc. Work free trade agreements. But what gives that stuff life or validity or legitimacy is culture. And culture, I'm not talking about as synonymous with people's Mm. ethnicity or geographical background or otherwise, but a shared set of values. And when you understand culture like that, you can come to understand how, of course, we build societies from people who have diverse backgrounds who come together agreeing on these kind of key priorities or things that will be the glue in society. But when you think about culture through that lens, you can come to understand how through campaigning and community building and realisation of that power at a grassroots level, we can build an environment that's conducive to that structural change. So all of the things that I've been capable of, you know, getting across the line over the past five years as technically a backbench last term, first term MP, was by virtue of that appeal to and campaigning and working with the community to force the government for this to be the only way to progress. So, Chloe, I wonder, though, you're right about this idea of, you know, creating change, widening the Overton window from in and around Parliament, but isn't it more effective to do that from opposition, from the crossbenches, even if it's with a supply and confidence agreement, than doing it from a public's point of view, half in, half out, and basically we tune you out now because you remember that you're connected to the government in a way? True, Bernard, because I've spent a lot of column inches and a lot, of, a lot of time in the media constructively critiquing Labour and how they've utilised their power. I mean, you only need to look at the instances where I've worked across the aisle with Nicola Willis and with the ACT Party even in Finance and Expenditure Committee, but Labour have used their absolute majority to, for example, for a year block access to Mm. basic information in terms of uh, the proposal that we had for an inquiry into the economic response to COVID-19 and the over-reliance on unconventional monetary policy and otherwise. So, yeah, I I wouldn't necessarily agree with that characterisation, but what I would say uh, is that those are the constant and very live discussions that we have as a caucus. How do you use that leverage inside of what is a quite limited spectrum of tools available to you in the parliamentary system to try and get outcomes? And one thing that I would say that does really frustrate me is kind of the constant write-off of the power of everyday people to band together to push for these changes. I mean, something which always I reflect on prior to coming into politics and when I was back at university, back when the TPPA or the anti-TPPA marches were happening, 
the way that that stuff was framed was protesters are disrupting traffic. Mm. It wasn't a broader discussion about, you know, our rights and freedoms and our future uh, in terms of the kinds of trade that we want to engage in, the kind of economy that we want to form, etc. So I do worry about the limitation to imagination, even in the context of our media landscape. Yeah. Well, can I ask you a question, Chloe, that just as possibly a final question, but Bernard will close it, in, I think, in a moment. But the... Uh, and it's a media question as well, in a sense. Is and, and Nicola raised the question, as did Raf, I think, about select committees and Labour shutting down things in select committees. Select committees have become very effective in some other legislatures. They're kind of ludicrous grandstanding things in the US, although they've also achieved a great deal. But you know, we've seen in the UK they've stood up. Don't we need? I, I thought actually, Simon, we've maybe mentioned this before. I thought Simon Bridges, who apparently used to be one of the previous leaders of the National Party, did a really good job. <laughs> chairing the inquiry into into COVID and the media during the during the lockdowns. We need more effective select committees, don't we? And possibly also better media attention to what's discussed at those select committees or explanation um, of those. A hundred percent. And I think part of the problem, you know, that we've got is that our media landscape is exhausted. Our journalists are exhausted. Tell us about it. We're knackered. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, we've got some, even in Parliamentary Press Gallery, the only journal who really tends to pay attention to what happens at FEC is Thomas Coughlin. And, you know, little six o'clock news, don't even think about it. The fact that they may be interested in monetary and fiscal policy. But that is the stuff that informs, you know, the OCR increases and what we're seeing now with regard to commentary um, and mortgage rates and otherwise. Yeah. So that reduction of bandwidth, and I think I always, Bernard, refer to that piece I think you wrote about Jamie Lee Ross and that kind of um, oh, metabolism. Oh, segue. You're doing uh, metabolism, some metabolism um, yeah. for, for media yeah. consumption means mm. that we have that 24-7 news cycle and aren't able to really mull through things. And actually, I was talking to high school students earlier this morning who were asking for how do we have this meaningful civic discussion? All right. I think Bernard and I are going to offer you, you and all New Zealand young people, a new platform for that meaningful civic discussion. Because we're old white men who, you know, who are down with the kids. But you did a fantastic, we, we often pride ourselves in our segues, and you've just done a brilliant segue because... Uh, and I'm going to try not to defame somebody here because that could be tricky for the future of the Bernard and Peter show. But Melanie Reed from Newsroom has done an excellent, or very interesting piece today about Jamie Lee Ross probably owning three uh, brothels in or three apartments that are being used for sex workers in the viaduct. So he's gone from being, you know, a complete rotter as an MP, and apparently, I don't really know him, but I, you know, I, I always confuse him with. Um, uh, Jamie Lee Curtis, who's a very different kettle of fish. But, yeah, he would appear to be running a sex worker thing, which, of course, in New Zealand is perfectly legal, and he's probably and providing a great service, and he's earning $100 an hour, it would appear, of their of their income. So Yeah, look, I can't say that I've read into the detail of the story. I have only seen the headlines pushed out um, on push notifications today, but it does seem as though we've got some very similar issues to um, what's occurred with Calendar Girls uh, mm. in Wellington. And we, of course, met with um, the, the strippers and the dancers uh, as the Greens about a week ago. And, yeah, again, this is in terms of the, the chippy chop or the, the policy bonfire that's underway at the moment, that work in supporting um, independent contractors and making sure that we get the legal balance right is another just really gutting thing that I can't have anticipated. Yeah. Uh, so the Jamie Lee Ross one was going to be my skateboarding <laughs> dog, but this week it's just a skateboarding rotter. But on that Calendar Girls one, I was immensely impressed by the woman who's leading that 
internet campaign mm. when she spoke on um, on, a, on our rival program, Kim Hill, which is produced with <laughs> just about as much skill as we've got going on here. Mm. She was just so lucid and mm. extraordinary and wonderfully explanatory about about why she does what she does and what her rights ought to be. I thought that was a terrific thing. It's phenomenal. Yeah. yeah. Thank you very much, Chloe, for coming on. Really appreciate it. And um, uh, we'll no doubt continue the discussion. And yes, please tell all your your friends and, and family to to join uh, with two old white men <laughs> talking talking. We're very bollocks. nice, and we don't bite. No, generally. don't no yeah. bite, not much. And we, um, and we also know what pronouns are, and we don't go on about that. No, no. And also, I'm actually slightly proud of trying to change that culture within the press gallery mm. of not being interested in. Monetary and fiscal policy, and yeah, uh, by moving to Auckland. Janae Trani is also doing some awesome work on yes, this. Yes, yes. No, I'm very. Um, they learned everything they know from me. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> sort of yeah. not. What? Yeah, not you, really. You moulded them from a from a simple piece of plasticine into mm, the complicated characters well, that they are now. They were employees at one point in, in yeah. different places, and I'm very. I think they do wonderful work, and I'm uh, sort of cheering them on from a distance. Thanks Couple. so much, Chloe. Thank you very much, Chloe. Thank you. Cheers. Catch you. Bye bye. Uh, thank you very much, everyone. Have a great weekend. Um, I'm Bernard Hickey. He's Peter Bale. This has been the Weekly Hoon on the Kaka. Bye bye. Thank you so much. Thank you.